Welcome back to the Admissions Uncovered podcast, where the college admissions podcast for the students, by the students. The past couple of weeks, I've been complaining a lot about college admissions, more than usual, that is. And one of the things I've complained the most about is how there's just so little transparency in college admissions. You ask what an admissions off you ask an admissions officer what do you want, what do you look for, and they say we don't look for anything. Anybody can apply. You ask if there are minimum SAT scores or ACT scores. They say, no, not really. Everybody should apply. You ask them, does the interview matter? Yes, no, maybe so. That's literally what they say. And so for high school students, when I was certainly when I was in high school, I was really frustrated because I just wanted to know the answer. And particularly when I got decisions back that didn't go in my favor, I wanted to know what happened and then why I had gotten turned down or deferred or waitlisted or whatever decision I had gotten. They don't give that information. Um, so that's something I have always been very mad about. But there is a little bit of a way to get some insight into that process. And, and that's called a FERPA request. And joining me to talk about the FERPA request process and also some data he himself collected from it is my good friend Jeffrey Wong. Uh, I know him. Hi. You're a mutual friend, I guess. So Jeffrey, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you for having me here. Of course. Sweet. So um, allow me to introduce myself, I guess. Yeah, please introduce yourself. Sure. So my name is Jeffrey Wong. Um, I'm a rising sophomore at UT Austin. Uh, I'm majoring in computer science and management. Um, and I'm in the Turing Scholars Program and the Business Honors Program. Um, I'm from Dallas, just like Michael is. Yeah. In fact, we're, we're from basically the same suburb. A little bit different, but yeah. just like 10 miles away from each other. Yeah, so we're basically from the same place. <laughs> and um, I'm the founder of r slash UTOS Admissions, which is a Reddit community that I created last year to help uh, applicants with the admissions process at UT Austin. So um, through my time on uh, r slash UTOS Admissions, I've done a lot of research into how admissions works at UT. And uh, one of those things is how to request your admissions file back using FERPA. So I'm really excited to be here today to talk about that. Yeah. So I guess let's first kind of like talk about FERPA and what it is. Um, I actually, so I'm, tr I'm trying to think, it's probably the Federal Education, um, what, Bill of Rights? Do you, do you know what that acronym stands for? It's the, um, it's the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act of 1974. I there think. I think. <laughs> Let me that look sounds, that up. That really sounds quickly. much more correct than the one I tried. Um, I, <laughs> right as we started, I was like, "Oh no, we're going to have to say what this acronym actually means." Uh, yeah, but it doesn't mean really too much, especially in the case of what um, what we're doing here today. Uh, basically, sure. how I like to say FERPA is like it kind of defines um, how to protect your data how to protect your um, your rights as a student, and then also like how parents can access your data. Right. So with FERPA, um, you know, there's a lot of parts of FERPA, some that apply to high school students, underage kids, some that apply to college students, but what what's the part of FERPA that will let you get your college admissions files from universities? So um, the part of FERPA that gets your college admissions files back is the part that says, students have to have access to all of their um, educational records. Uh, 
especially ones that pertain to themselves personally. So anything, anything personally identifiable is the property of the student. It's not the property of the school. Um, it, it's actually like you have the right to it because it's your information. Um, and so in college, uh, as defined by FERPA, college students have complete control of their own uh, files. So actually the parents don't have access to it unless uh, the student gives them rights to it. And it doesn't even matter if the student is like under 18. Like it, it's still uh, oh, wow. okay. entirely, yeah, it's still entirely within the student's realm. Uh, that applied to me because I went to I went to TAMS, which is a high school at the University of North Texas. And since we were college students, technically speaking, um, I had to like sign forms in order to give access to my parents for my grades. Wow. So, wow. so yeah, that's really um, But anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, that's why like um, there's no like issues with requesting your information um, as a college student because you usually you're an adult and you have the right to your data. So um, through this, you can request basically anything that the institution has on file for you that's in, under your name. And that especially includes admissions files. Now, one thing I am curious about is, you know, I went through the FERPA process and, and got my admissions files back. But one thing that I had in my mind before going into it was, you know, didn't I sign a FERPA waiver when I when I wrote my common app one of the things that you have to do at least I thought you had to do or that I did was that when I requested teacher rec letters something popped up and it said you have to waive your FERPA rights and, and I did um, what effect does that have if any on, on your request to the university so this FERPA waiver is actually only applicable to your letter recommendations um, and it indeed holds like um, whenever you do request your admissions file back, the university will prevent you from accessing those because you did sign a waiver and that, that is fully binding. So, um, we weren't supposed to get our letters back if we signed a waiver at UT. Um, I think there were some mistakes made. I did, but I did <laughs> sign a waiver. So that wasn't supposed to happen. And, uh, I try not to look at them, but yeah. Uh, they were they were they weren't supposed to be released to me. So that's but what anyway, happened to me uh, too. I, that's what happened to me too. Like I was not expecting to get the rec letters back. I had seen them just because my teachers had showed them to me and were like, "Is this all right? You want to make any changes?" But I was not expecting to see it in my file, but I did. So oh wow, that's interesting. Well, um, I guess there are some. I guess there are some legal like um, conf there's some legal confusion I guess surrounding. The release of of letter of recommendations, I guess, um, for multiple universities. It looks like um, they're they're really not supposed to be released. Um, right. But that's the only thing that's a, that's impacted by that waiver. It doesn't impact whether you can see your application or not, and it doesn't impact whether you can see uh, your like your admissions data or not either. Right. Now, now the, I think the other misconception is that you can just go around FERPAing any school you apply to. And, and that's not true, right? You can only FERPA the school that you're currently a student at. Is that's that correct? correct. So universities are under no obligation to respond to your FERPA request if you're not a currently enrolled student. So I actually went around and did FERPA request uh, the, uh, the institutions that I got into, but I didn't end up attending. And they all responded back to me, no. 
<laughs> that's that's the hey that's the that's the most i could do like they're fully within their rights to refuse me that so i'm, I'm fine sure. with it um interestingly enough though i know of a student who's going to uc berkeley they haven't even started attending uc berkeley yet and they were able to get their ut austin missions file back really? so it looks like they ut austin UT and... wow ut austin's a little bit more lenient with this um but i don't i haven't seen any other school that that is this lenient yeah, neither have I. Um, I. I only tried FERPing some of the schools and not all of them, and they all said no as well. So, the, the, and it's important. So it's really it's, the exception and not the rule that that person yeah. who goes to Berkeley now. And it's important to note that every single school, including UT Austin, that I've heard of, uh, will deny requests from students who are rejected from that institution, which means you can't see why you were rejected from a school. Yeah, so this is not the end-all be-all solution to all your burning questions that wake you up at night, that give you nightmares. Um, this will not answer your questions completely, but I think the data that we get from it can sometimes be interesting. Now, when I FERPA, um, when I sent my FERPA request into Columbia, I got this FERPA file that was not that interesting. It was just my application and that's it. No annotations, no marks, no extra documents that explain Columbia's decisions or what Columbia did to that application. So it wasn't that interesting for me. Uh, but it seems like, Jeffrey, you had a different experience. You had some interesting stuff come out. Yeah, it was really interesting and actually kind of unexpected. So I got my file back and um, it had not just my application data, it had all the statistics that UT Austin compiled on me. And it also contained, more importantly, um, the scores that I was assigned as a student that determined whether I'd be admitted to UT Austin or not. So the way UT Austin admissions works, I'll give a quick rundown, is every student is given two scores, the academic index and the personal achievement index. The academic index is known as AI and is on a scale from 0 to 4.1. I do see like all the data that UT Austin has on me, like including, um, you know, my uh, the things that I submitted in my application. So none of that's missing. But I guess the things that I hadn't seen before is really just like um, is uh, you know what scores are they using? When were the decisions made? And uh, more importantly, what were my academic index scores and my personal achievement index scores? So I'm going gonna, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna to start referring to academic index as AI and then personal achievement index as PAI. Perfect. Um, now, I, I'd like to like break it down into those two categories. And, and let's first start with the academic index score, since that seems to me the, the, the one that there might be a lot of objections to in terms of how they characterize your academic performance. Because, mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a lot of, I think there's a trend in education, and probably rightfully so, that grades and pure numbers do not capture a student's potential or, or even their ability to, to capture the subjects or learn the subjects. So what mm -hmm. are the things that go into that AI score? It's actually more simple than you think. And that's actually, mm -hmm. I think, this something very concerning. Because I don't agree with what it, how it's calculated, but it is what it is. So... Um, essentially there, let me pull up a document, uh, per, like released by the UT system in the wake of Fisher v. UT. So I can give you like the official, um, words of UT Austin. So the academic sure. index is comprised of a few things, your class rank, uh, the completion of UT required high school curriculum, uh, 
the extent to which students exceed the UT required units, and then your SAT or ACT score. And that's it. And uh, notice that I made a very glaring omission. I did not say uh, GPA. And right. that is intentional. And UT Austin actually does not uh, consider your GPA at all. Really? Yes. Yeah, it's completely based on class rank, SAT, and the extent to which you uh, exceed um, UT required units. And this is called Units Plus. Well, I, I guess the class rank could be a reflection of your GPA, although that isn't even true in some instances, right? For, for, for Dallas ISD, there is like a weird system of points and, and there are like weighted points based on APs and, and dual credit classes, um, not just pure unweighted GPA. So I guess, do you, do you have thoughts on not having the GPA? I don't know, that just seems very strange to me. It makes sense given that uh, UT Austin has to comply with Texas's top, you know, top X percent rule, which is obviously it's not going to be like top 10 percent for UT Austin. It's going right. to be like top six percent and it'll later be like five percent, four percent, etc. So, um, yeah, like, yeah, I think it makes the math easier for them, but also it does create a lot of confusion because there are a lot of unranked schools like such as such as um, my school tams it was unranked and so like in that case i was given like a a fake class rank a derived high school percentile and and how do they derive that percentile that seems strange it's still a mystery to me but from what i understand uh my high school would provide a gpa distribution and based on my grades, I would be assigned a derived rank. But I really That seems strange. I don't, I'm not sure exactly how they do it because I still feel like that's not the complete picture because over 25% of my class had a 4-0. So, and I had a 4-0. So, like, that's definitely not the reason. That's, the, that's right. definitely not like how I got my exact derived class rank. Um, according to my file, I was I was like 97%. But if everybody had a 4-0, if a lot of people had a 4-0 and you also had a 4-0, did, did everybody with a 4-0 just end up with a 97 percentile? I, I, I don't know if this is something you know, but... I am, I'm not sure. I'd like to know that, but I, I, have, a, I have a feeling it's, that's not the case. Um, yeah. I'd be really concerned if it were... I have a feeling it might have to do with maybe SATs as well, but I'm just going out on a complete guess here. Uh, so right. I'm not going to comment on that too much. But but yeah, like, you know, um, there are some other edge cases too. Like if you're homeschooled, I think they're just going to use your SAT to complete, compute your fake class rank. That's that's provided by Texas law. But yeah, the, the key takeaway here is UT Austin doesn't even look at GPA. They just look at class rank. That's really interesting. Um, so, so basically, the three components are, are class rank, your scores on SAT or ACT, and and the classes that you took in high school, the number of units that are above the requirements for UT, right? Those three exactly. Yes. Do we know how UT weights them? Do they do they put a lot of weight on class rank, less weight on the SAT, and then medium weight on the units plus system, uh, or, or are they all you know thirty three point you know a third percent of the overall AI score. So UT Austin doesn't publicly release this information, 
and that's why um, several um, several people from our slice two submissions and I have been investigating into this. And from what we've researched so far, uh, it seems like we have a we have identified at least one of the equations that's used to calculate the academic index for someone. Um, and pretty much, um, you can kind of, you can just go and see like um, how everything is weighted. So for, for the listeners, I will put this link, you're referring to the UT Admissions Academic Index Calculator, I'm guessing. Um, I'll put that link in the show notes. So if you go to admissionsuncovered.com and click on whatever episode this happens to be, it, there will be a link to this. Um, and I think it's cool to play around with if you're interested in, in applying to UT or just like curious about how admissions works. Um, so there's this thing here, I see it with, you can play around with inputting values for your class rank, your, your scores and your uh, units plus system. Can you explain how this works? Like, how do the numbers come about? I'm sure there's some fancy math involved, but but generally, like, how did you get to, to this um, formula? Okay, so we what we did was we requested our files back, and then several of us, of us contributed our data points, and then also the calculated academic index and personal achievement, or not personal achievement index, but our academic index uh, values. Right. How many data points went into made this formula uh we have about i think we used about five or six data points and then we use several more for validation purposes mm, okay yeah and so i know there are some concerns about this um about the data set like the number of data points being low right and right. We're, we're trying to get as many as possible of course um but uh but the thing is we know for a fact that this is a linear equation and um this uh, this equation is uh, has been backed by our data points with a uh, a very low p value less than zero point zero zero one and um, and the uh, and the r squared is about point nine nine four six so right so and so typically the p value you want you want to be less than five point five percent point oh five and you want your mm -hmm. R squared as close to positive one, or if it's a positive mm -hmm. correlation, or negative one, if it's a negative correlation as possible, right? That's right. And I attribute the R squared not being one to rounding errors because they don't include the, the like, they truncate the uh, academic index on our files to three decimal points, so four significant figures. Um, I, I think that's where the R squared gets, uh, gets uh, distorted. But, um, I mean, as far as this goes, like, if we have, like, a fixed equation, and the um, and we're getting R squares that, that close to one, like it's pretty much pointing to the fact that we've either identified one of the equations or we've identified at least one of the, or, or we would identify the equation. Um, I'm not sure if there's multiple equations or not. We can't tell that unless we get more data points. But as far as we know, this is one of them. And I think this is a good place to start off with. Right. Now, can is there anything you can read out of this um, interpret in, uh, in, read out of this formula in terms of interpretations? I, I know there's like a lot of numbers here, mm -hmm. uh, but yeah. is there something that this says about what uh, UT values in the admissions process? Um, what things they look for and correlate? It does. It does. So, 
I think UT Austin places their first and foremost emphasis on class rank. Um, it's it's a it's a pretty significant part of the formula, um, and and Do I think it's more so as as a as like a percentage of the overall index. Um, so it's about. I would say it's almost half of the, half of the, uh, of the AI, is derived from from class rank, and so. Um, That's pretty big. If, yeah, it is pretty big. If we um, look at just SATs alone, you know, it's going to be a very small contribution. Um, so. This might be because uh, they do expect a class rank of above, like a class rank percentile, like as close to one hundred as possible. So they don't really consider people like in the, you know, first percentile because that's just way too low. But right, right. yeah, but but essentially speaking, yes, um, class rank's about half. SAT is slightly lower than half. I would say about. Um, I'd say about a third, maybe. And then the remaining sixth is from units plus, from what we've gathered so far. And the important thing to the important thing to note from this is we had to gather this data, and we had to, um, you know, create like a linear regression to find these, uh, find the weights. So these weights could change any time. And so far, we've noticed that they have been consistent between 2017 to 2019. But that, that could change at any time. So um, it's very arbitrary, and it could always change. But this is just what we've noticed for these three years. Right. And so one thing that I'm also noticing is that there are different academic indexes for different disciplines, right? So you have a liberal arts index, natural sciences index. What, what's that about? UT Austin used to have four different um, formulas for each like each category. So liberal arts and natural sciences, like these are for like liberal arts and then other schools, natural sciences and some other related STEM schools, the business school and then the engineering school. They they would calculate different AIs based on um, where you applied to. Um, it used to be the case that the formulas were all different. Now they differ. They, now they only differ by a constant factor. And every single data point we've collected so far, which is about ten, I think, at the moment, has shown that it is. It remains constant. So um, I'm pretty certain that that's the case. So what might be the reason why they differ by a constant? Yeah, and they okay. So it and the the uh, the amount they differ by is very telling of how UT Austin perceives the difficulty of these uh, of these schools. So liberal arts is is going to be your highest AI, followed by business, and then natural sciences is a little lower than business, and finally engineering is the lowest. <laughs> so you kind of yeah, it, it's it's really funny. I, I I mean I'm not trying to like in, reinforce stereotypes here, but this is literally what the data shows and. I guess that says a lot about how UT Austin considers this. I mean, I think this is a whole nother episode, but I'm an econ major, so like a businessy type, I do not disagree. I do not object. Um, now, the thing is, you would be considered liberal arts at UT Austin. 
Yeah, I don't disagree. I really don't disagree. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, like it, it is really interesting to see how this works. I think in the past, what they did was they had different equations, and they did not differ by a linear constant, because I think they would weigh weigh SAT or they would weigh like the math part of the SAT more than the English part of the SAT for like engineers. But this isn't the case anymore, actually. Um, what we found out is that they just they actually look at your composite SAT score to determine your um, to to be factored into the academic index equation. There's no weighting based on math and reading anymore. Not any not anymore. And notice I only say SAT, right? Um, I took the ACT, and that's how I got my highest score. But apparently, UT Austin they just they convert from ACT to SAT. So they'll take your ACT composite score and they'll convert it to your to the uh, respective SAT equivalent score using College Board's concordance tables. Does a thirty six get to a sixteen hundred? No, it gets to fifteen ninety. Yeah, that's what I remembered when I was looking at these tables um, a while ago. That seems mm-hmm. that seems like yeah. that seems like a judgment on the difficulty of these tests, which they don't they don't say. Like they publicly say that they treat these two tests. The same, but if a top score mm-hmm. in the ACT is like ten points under the top score in the SAT, it's it's a small thing, but it is like a judgment on the difficulty of these tests and the value of them. It is, and um, it's worth noting that UT Austin doesn't set these concordances; it's College Board. So obviously, there's some sort of systemic bias here that favors the SAT because guess who creates the SAT, right? So, <laughs> of course, College Board is going to say their test is harder. Yeah. So like it's it's really unfortunate, but it is what it is. Um, I can confirm it in my admissions files. It indeed says fifteen ninety under my um, equivalent SAT score. So that's what they used. Mm-hmm. That's really unfortunate. Yeah, it is what it is, though. Now you know, like this is, I think, a real point where I have an issue with this academic calculator. What are other things that you see in it that that like might be a little bit troublesome? Well, I mean, I, I, I think uh, uh, when we originally were trying to um, figure out the academic index formula, we were under the imp- we were operating under the impression that units plus was a fixed um, bonus. You would only get zero point one points added to your AI. So, real quick, units plus is just. The so UT gives out minimum requirements that you have to take in high school. So units yes. plus is the number of units you've taken above those requirements. That's correct. And we okay. were operating on the under the impression that originally, um, it'd be a fixed bonus. So if you exceeded it by one, you would get the point one bonus. Right. If you exceeded right. by by like five classes, you'd still get point one. Okay. Um, but this threw our regression off. It, it didn't make any sense. Our R squares were very low, and we were very confused. Right. So we finally ditched that, and we, we thought, okay, maybe units plus is, is actually linear. It's, it's actually scales. Um, and there has been backlash against me. I've been publicly called out for this. Um, really? And I've been told that this is ridiculous, and that this is stupid, and that you know this is, this is not true. By whom? By the admissions officer, or, or by just like other students? No, by a former admissions officer who operates textadmissions.com. Ah, um, he claims yeah, okay. he, he worked he worked in the office, I think like what? A while ago, right? Years. 
of yeah, yeah, many years ago, probably during Fisher VUT. And so all I have to say is um, the, the, the white paper that UT system released in 2014 said that they considered the extent to which students exceed the UT required units. And that because we, we modified our model to have it as a linear sliding scale, we were able to get an R squared of 0.9946. So um, even though there are a lot of um, people who doubt this, all I'm going to say is this, that the data talks. And uh, if you don't believe in science, then that's really unfortunate. I don't know what to say. <laughs> I'm, I'm now, really serious. Yeah. Can, yeah. Can, 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 so I'm a, still a little bit confused about the distinction, right? So, so what you're saying is that it's not the fact that if you just have a bonus, if you have any number of credits above the UT minimum, you're just going to get one, like, like a fixed bonus point, right? You're saying Correct. it's not that. Instead, Correct. you're saying that there's some type of like multiplier effect. So if you're just one above, yes. you'll get one point. If you're two points above, you'll get something more than just one. You'll get like 1.5 per credit yes. above. Is, is that what you're saying? It's, it's not, it's not a multiplier. It's a, um, it's a, it's a sliding linear scale. You get so what does that point. Mean? So like, let's say, um, let's say you're, you know, let's say you're top of your class and you have a 1600, then your maximum linear or liberal arts AI is going to be like a 3.5 per model. Um, let's say you, you took like one more class, then it's going to increase to like a 3.639. So it's like a, it's about a 0.1 difference, but it just keeps stacking. I think the maximum caps is at around like 4.1 for linear uh, liberal arts. And then the cap will be slightly lower for the rest. So, okay. So there's no multiplier effect, but basically what, what this linear uh, sliding scale means is that the people who are just taking more credits or are at a school who allows them to take more credits that doesn't have resource limitations, like really big schools like Plano and Allen in our area mm -hmm. do. Uh, maybe the school yes. you, you went to too. Okay. Uh, yes. had as well, which means that basically students who went to a school like mine, who you had to take, for example, like eight classes and had the option to take up to nine, in fact, would have the advantage because they would just, because by virtue of the number of opportunities they had, they just would take more credits. Is that, is, is that a fair interpretation? That is absolutely correct. And that's the exact, um, that's the exact concern that people had when I revealed that it wasn't linear anymore. Um, and they said that that was completely unfair. And my response to that is, I'm just looking at the data. I'm interpreting it based on science. If you have a problem with it, you should talk to UT admissions, not me. So, right. yeah. Because, because that, that does seem to me slightly problematic because then you just have kids taking a so. lot of classes and they're getting like 71s and 75s and they're still getting the boost to their, you know, um, units plus. Now, maybe their class rank is hurt, but but that depends on how the school or in the district does that class rank calculation because the, the district yep. could say, like, we'll just take the top, like, 12 semesters. But ultimately, the advice I would give to students still in high school who are applying to, trying to apply to ET Austin is that they could modify this equation anytime they wanted to, and they could right. easily, you know, stop considering it, or they could revert back to a fixed bonus. So uh, I really highly recommend against trying to game the system like this because the AI calculation that was used for my year was not in existence when I was a, when I was a freshman in high school. We were both freshmen in high school, so right. there would be no point, right? Because we we can't predict the future. 
Um, and so my, my suggestion to people is don't try to gain the system. I'm pretty sure it could change by the time um, you apply to UT Austin. And it really is just more of like what's in your favor, right? Um, right. And it's unfortunate that this, this, um, this hurts students from, um, from schools that don't have as many opportunities. But right. at the same time, class rank, evaluating based on class rank does hurt students from schools with more opportunities because they tend to be more competitive. And so a student with a really brilliant SAT score might not be as highly ranked. So that will make a big difference. Yeah, right. that, does, that does hurt students from these, from these schools. Okay. So, so that's the academic index calculator. Is there any other thing of note that, that you came out of from, from the academic index side of the equation? Uh, that's pretty much it. Um, I can explain later how academic index and the personal achievement index are, um, are used to determine your admission. But, but yeah, yeah. I, I can talk about the personal achievement index if you'd like. Yeah, because that's one thing that I'm more curious about, right? So this is, there, there's some formula basically that, that UT is using um, for, for the AI score. But for the personal score, I'm just so curious how they just like come up with the score. Do they like count up extracurricular activities and multiply it by, you know, like the amount of leadership positions you've had? Like what, what, how, how does this personal score come about? Uh, I'm think I think it's just arbitrarily assigned by admissions officers. Um, it's on a scale from one to six, where one is like the the worst, and then the six is the best. Um, and uh, you know, according to the white paper, it says that admissions officers are trained on how to evaluate uh, a student. So um, you know, from from the white paper, it says that they'll evaluate uh, applicants based on. Uh, you know, scores on your essays, leadership, extracurriculars, wars, honors, work experience, service, blah, 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 and also special circumstances. And this is where it gets controversial. Um, we have the socioeconomic status of your family, single parent home status, language spoken at home, family responsibilities, you know, the socioeconomic status of the school attended, so like where you're from, um, mm -hmm. the average SAT versus, of the school versus their own SAT, ACT, and mm -hmm. then... Um, okay. And then, and then your race. Oh, yeah. okay. So that's where the controversial part comes in. <laughs> yes. And of course, UT got sued over this and they wanted the Supreme Court, so they are free to continue doing so. Right. So, so this, is, this reminds me, just like on a, on a side note, of the SAT's new adversity score. It seems like UT's just been using that adversity score for a while and the college board's just like lifted it. Yeah. Um, I mean... Yeah, I, I don't know if UT Austin's going to start using the adversity score in the future. I think they could, but they would have to reformulate their, um, their you know, the way they evaluate people. So I'm not sure. We'll see in the future. But at the moment, I mean, if they kind of were pioneers in this, I think they'll just probably stick to this system. I think so, too. Yeah. Although I, I am a little bit curious. So how are admissions officers, quote unquote, train like how, how what what is there i i don't know if you know the answer to this question but i'm just like thinking out loud how do you rank extracurricular achievement from a scale of one to six that implies that there's something that's the ideal something that's the six that you kind of like rank everything against 
this is something I'm also very unclear about, and I'd also like to get more answers into, but um, I have a few things that I can share from what I can understand. Sure. So, I think the key takeaway here is there can be overrides into your PAI. If there's one part of your application that exceptionally stands out, I think you can make up for other parts that are lacking. Um, so let's see in terms of like your extracurriculars, you know, if they're, they're good enough, um, I think they should be, you know, they should be pretty much fine. Um, if your essays are really good and your extracurriculars are lacking, I think that could actually make up for, if you make up for the lack of extracurricular rigor. Um, and then let's see, and I think extracurriculars and essays are like the main two things that are evaluated here. And from what I've heard, uh, extracurriculars do have a little higher weight than essays, um, unless your essays are just really outstanding. Right. So, so is this stuff coming out of the data or stuff you've heard from people close to the admissions office? Uh, this is just um, pure speculation, actually, um, just ba based on people's experiences and their, the scores they got. Um, because we, I have had people like you know request their files back and then tell me like, oh yeah, I got a PAI of like six or five, and that 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 kind of explains why. Like, it kind of explains like why they got in, because like otherwise their AI would have been um, would have basically disqualified them, right? Yeah, so their PAI made up for that, and I'll I'll explain that later. But um, but yeah, essentially, um, it does feel like UT Austin uses the PAI to kind of equalize against someone's AI. So the AI is kind of fixed, right? It is what it is, like you know. But if you want, if you don't want to be defined by your AI, then you should probably you know try to maximize your PAI. And I really just highly recommend you know having the best essays that you can. Um, and then if you fall under those special circumstances, it'll just help you. UT Austin will calculate an adversity score for each applicant. Um, I've seen as high as 15. I don't know how, how high it can get, but I'm assuming the higher it gets, the more adversity you have. Cause my adversity score was zero and that's totally fine with me. <laughs> I mean, I don't, yeah. I didn't face any adversity compared to other people. So like, that's totally for okay. Sure. Um, I don't deserve anything higher than a zero, <laughs> but yeah, for sure, for sure, I've seen, for sure. I've, I've seen people, I've seen people who have like, you know, ranted about their parents on their essays <laughs> and that, that earned them a little higher of a university score, like maybe like three or something. I don't even know. So yeah. I think that's, I think that's like a, a conversation for another episode, the adversity score and, and things like the elephant to the room is obviously affirmative action in terms of. The role of, of race in calculating that adversity score but i think it is just mm -hmm. interesting that schools institutions ut has been doing this for a while now apparently been assigning numbers to that adversity and numbers to to our personalities which i don't know how i feel yeah absolutely and ut austin says that they've been considering race and ethnicity in the application process since fall 2005. so they've been doing this for more than a decade now absolutely I mean, the one thing that this, you know, and, and like 
I have been on record on this episode, say on this podcast, saying that affirmative action on race base, on class base, on on, on gender base, even is good for education and and is good for society. But I will say, like this is eerily reminiscent of of the type of stuff Harvard has been up to in their lawsuit in terms of on a fixed scale between like zero and ten or zero and six, giving some number for like a personality score, right? It, it seems yeah. like very susceptible to stereotypes within admissions officers it does it really does um and that's why i think it's even more concerning that there's no comments left on our admissions files because we don't get to see why uh, our pai was assigned to us in the way that it was so um yeah if if someone like decides like hey you know uh, this guy is this race oh well um he also appears to be like from this low-income place, let's give them a higher PAI because of that. Well, that right. is basically like an override in the AI system, and that will increase your chance of getting admitted. Right. Um, it's, a, it's important to note, though, that um, from what I've heard is that admissions officers do not get to see an applicant's uh, academic index, so they won't be biased in terms of the overrides they'll make in their PAI. They don't even get to see like their raw test score? data i don't think so i don't think so and that that's fair because the academic index should theoretically be the the, the factor that like that evaluates your academic rigor right so there right. shouldn't be any bias from the evaluator personally they should only the uh, admissions officer should only be evaluating the personality parts right but although i I, um, I have i think two points on this one of which is that I had teachers write about my grades, just like it was an off-mention type thing, right? Like, you know, in that opening paragraph where they're like, this kid is XYZ, XYZ. My counselor wrote my class rank in, in the rec letter. So if the admissions officer is looking through these documents, you know, it feels like that unless they've gone through and pre-redacted things, that there are ways for that academic information to still leak out. That's a good point. I thought about that. And I guess that would be kind of... Um... You know, that would be kind of, uh, you know, it would kind of defeat the purpose of not giving them their um, academic scores. But I guess that's just that's just how it is. Yeah. And, and the other thing I wonder is, shouldn't things like, you know, like basically what UT is doing is separating out the academic side of a person and, and the personal side of the person and just treating them as kind of separate things. And yes. I wonder if if that's like very stupid. Like, isn't the academic side of a person informed by the personal side of the person? Like, I, I think the story that I'm t gonna tell is like the classic story of someone who grew up in a low income environment, did not have money for test prep and, and therefore didn't score as highly on the SAT. I guess like the adversity score is supposed to offset that, but it seems like a weird system to not just like combine the two and allow admissions officer to just like evaluate the two together rather than just saying they're just like two separate things. It seems like a weird values statement. Well, I haven't really shown you how exactly these two scores are used to uh, admit students yet. So once you once I tell you that, you'll be even more surprised. But I'll just okay, say- Okay, so, so let's I, get there, I, let's get there. Yeah, yeah, I'll actually, I'll, I'll say that right now, and I'll, I'll tell you, like, why I don't like this. So what they'll do is they'll take your academic index and then put it on on the x-axis of a grid. And then mm -hmm. they'll put your personal achievement index and put it on the y-axis. 
and uh-huh. your position your position on the grid is a, a basically an ordered pair right x y and depending on which part of the grid you fall under you'll be admitted or denied uh-huh okay yeah i'm bothered right. by this yeah ex- uh, of course i mean it's it's um there i've i i've known about this for a long time and you know it still bothers me to this day uh, of how this works um but basically speaking um, if you have like, let's say you have a really great AI and a really great PI, of course you'll get in. You know, that's right, right. there's no question about that. If you have a really trash AI and PAI, you're not going to get in. It's very obvious right. as well. But if you, let's say you have a really good academic index and a not so good personal achievement index, or if you have a really good personal achievement index and then not such a good academic index, which is a right. very big, you know, corner case, right? Um, yeah. That's where it kind of uh, gets to be a problem. Which, like, where will that get you on the grid? And will that grid position be an admit grid like position or a denied one? Right? So it turns out, right, like, it's not individual admissions officers making the decision of whether to admit somebody based on the combination of their AI and PAI scores. It's where they fall on a grid. And this grid is, ver- is not holistic. This grid is is fixed in mathematical. Right. Right. So I, I'm trying to get my head around it, but but the thing that I have in my mind is in order to create this grid system where there's like an emit zone and a deny zone, you gotta have some numbers. Like you gotta pick a Y and pick an X. And do you have any thought like insights on, on how they calculate that score? Or choose that cutoff point? So that's done by senior admissions officials in the admissions office. The admissions officers themselves don't even know where the cutoff is. It's very secretive. And and they just pick? Like, do, do you know what decision, like, is it like a question of looking at how many students they would admit if they chose a cutoff point of, of, of yes, 75? I think it, I, I think it is at that point uh, up to like, just enrollment numbers in general. It's just playing an enrollment numbers game. That's it. Okay. Because obviously UT Austin has a lot of qualified applicants. It's just a matter of how much space they have. And UT is big about space and like space um, space management, right? Um, we have a whole office dedicated to space management. It's not even a joke. Really? Um, it's oh, sorry. It's called. It's I think it's called the Office of Enrollment Management. Yeah. Okay, that yeah. sounds a little yeah. bit better than space management. <laughs> but um, but basically, their job is to get people out as soon as possible, and <laughs> try not to bring too many people in. Like okay. if you let's say let's say I completed my CS major, <laughs> let's say I complete my CS degree before I complete my business degree, I would actually be force graduated with my CS degree only. So, you couldn't just... finish your business degree even though you you started it. I'm actually not clear on that, but pretty much like they're going to force graduate me with a CS degree first, like without my consent. That mm-hmm. seems like a problem. It, it, this is just one of the big problems of having going to a state university, but you know, that's how UT Austin deals with it. Um, so as you can see, like UT Austin's administration has a big emphasis on, uh, on space management. Um, <clears throat> so like, it's also entrenched in how they deal with admissions. But on the converse side, 
like what does this mean for students right my opinion is that this is a this is a terrible system for admitting students because i see a lot of qualified people who are uh who are denied from ut austin because they simply did not fit on the right place on the grid even though they easily should have been admitted well you know you know, t- to me, there's something I-, I will say something in defense of the system, which is that it seems like you need something like this when you're dealing with so many applications. Um, and obviously, like the admissions officers just have like limited resources in terms of the funding the department gets. And, and it seems like it is the case that you're going to need some system for sorting out kids that, that isn't mm-hmm. just purely holistic. Now, I will say like grids and arbitrary cutoff points seem like a far extreme to go. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think it's the best system. It, it definitely has places where it could be improved. And I think just the, the way that a grid like works, mathematically speaking, it just it doesn't really make much sense to me that they are doing this. But that's just my opinion. Um, I, I think there could be improvements to how they utilize you know the indices if they continue to use them. But... I understand they're trying to like, you know, be fair and, um, you know, be like um, objective as also as objective as possible, given that they are a state run institution. But, you know, at the same time, it's just not perfect and it needs to be changed. Well, the argument from UT's perspective, I assume, would would be that the process is just holistic admissions with numbers attached to various features. Right, because they're still taking into account the things that holistic admissions allows you to do. It allows you to take into account things that might contribute to the adversity score. It lets you take into account things that are not just purely numerical, right? Extracurricular activities, honors, essays. So, so what do you think of that? Do you think it's fair? Do you think, do you think it's truthful for UT admissions officers to go out there and say, yes, we are holistic admissions? No. I don't think UT Austin is holistic in how they admit students, and I strongly I'm, I'm against whenever someone calls it that. Um, I've tr- I whenever I see UT Austin admissions call themselves holistic, I get very upset because it's just simply not how it works. You can't call a system that puts students on a grid and then admit students based on where they fall on the grid as holistic. Like that's just not holistic. That's mathematical and subjective. But, but the way they calculate those grid points still includes basically the whole person, right? Um, no, not really, because, you know, um, because the academic index is, is not holistic at all. And so that's going right. to influence where you fall in the grid no matter what. So there is going to be some bias that's not holistic. And the problem is a grid is not enough to override a bad academic index. Like, let's say we have this exceptional student that maybe did not perform that well academically, but they've done amazing extracurriculars and have great essays and, you know, they're, they're you know, they're first-generation student, etc. Um, but if their AI is too low, I don't, and then that, and their PAI is very high, you know, if they choose not to admit that student because they fell on the wrong place in the grid, then there's nothing that could have been done by a holistic admissions 
process. There's nothing that could have been done by the holistic admissions review process, right? Right. So at, at the end of the day, because where you fall on the grid is where you're admitted from, that makes it not holistic. Right. Be, be, and and I think I, and I think you're right on this, which is that there's an element of just like you don't know with holistic admissions, whereas in this process, it's 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 I think. I think I'm mathematically correct to say it's 50% the AI and 50% the PAI because it's 50% the X and 50% the Y. Is that well? Would that be fair? I I don't like to characterize it as that just because it depends on like if that really were the case, then why can't they just make it a linear system instead of like a 2D system? I think because we have two dimensions here, that's what makes it kind of not 50 and 50 it really depends on like where you fall on the grid and then where you fall on the grid will change the weight if that makes any sense right no that makes sense right because presumably the yeah. weight 50 50 would depend on where the cutoff points are, are put right because if, exactly. if it's put higher on on the x for instance that means there's a higher emphasis placed on a higher weight given to the x coordinate um, exactly. So that that certainly makes sense, but but there's something there about there's like a percentage, a fixed percentage weight given to academics and a fixed percentage weight given to you know the PII that that seems like deeply not holistic. Would that be fair to say? I agree. And this is like very confusing to people. Like I do have people ask me like, okay, so it's fifty percent academics and fifty percent personal achievement, right? And it's just like mm, not really. It's a very confusing system. And I guess to really understand your chances at UT Austin, it, it you have to kind of like dive into this. But yeah, pretty much like no worries. I think a lot of people have this misconception, but it's just better to explain the grid and then how the grid works. And I think as long as you understand that, then you kind of have an idea of how to how to get in. Right. Now, one thing I'll say is that you know, as someone who I've also been very honest about this and maybe too honest is that like I was very interested in Ivy League schools for potentially not the right reasons. Um, but, you know, the system generally for Ivy League schools is that scores act as a baseline. And then after you pass the baseline, the, the effect of them on your chances of getting in are, are really marginal. Um, and, and that seems like a different system than the one here where the academic index or, or your raw SAT scores, GPA or class rank, raw numbers on the academic side seem to, in the UT system, carry over throughout the process rather than just being a first level test or disqualifier. Exactly. Exactly. Now, do you have some thoughts about, like clearly we both have some qualms with the system. Do you have some thoughts about what UT can do better? Well, I don't have like a I don't have like a proposal to like on how exactly it should be revamped, but I would say just the the grid system it does it it is where a lot of the issues come into play of how students are admitted. You know, I do see a lot of people who should have gone to UT and they easily would have done well at UT not get in. And then I see people who get into UT and go to UT struggle. And I wonder, like, why do they get in? Right? Right. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, I don't want to be rude, <coughs> but, like, there are some people who should not go into UT. They get in, and then they struggle, and then they drop out. 
So that's not that's not really what UT wants, right? And it's not really fair to the state for students who are not really prepared for UT's rigor to go in and then drop out. So obviously, we <laughs> want students to go in prepared. Um, I just feel like it is because of the way the system works that are the the you know the drawbacks of the system uh, create this phenomenon create this effect so uh i would like to see a system that doesn't use a grid perhaps if, if it could use it maybe even if we you know departed away from ais and pais we might be able to see some different results in how students are admitted um, i don't know if ut is ready yet to do like an ivy league system where scores are just the baseline and then everything else is personality um, but like, yeah, at the end of the day, UT has a lot of things to like juggle. They have to juggle the demands of state legislators. They have to juggle, you know, affirmative action. They have to juggle space enrollment, uh, enrollment management, and they have to juggle, you know, the qualification of the student. And so this right. is just the results. This is the product of having to balance all those things. It's not perfect, but it is what it is. And that seems to me like the problem that UT is trying to face because, you know, like I can't see, you know, a system where you keep AIs and PAIs and not have some type of a grid or some type of like a, you know, fixed way of evaluating who gets in and who gets out based on those two scores. Otherwise, what's the point of those two scores, right? Like if you just give the two numbers to admissions officers and ask them to make a judgment, yes, no, they're going to have some implicit cutoff point in their head as well. So, like, yeah. if you want to get away from the grid system, it seems like you just have to do away with AIs and PAIs. Yeah, I agree. And I don't know if there's just, like, enough resources to do the kind of, like, very committee-based system evaluating the, the actual people and only their, I guess, only the factors that go into their PIAs, PIAs that you might see at, at, a, at like, an Ivy League or, or like, a private institution with more resources in their admissions office. Right. UT Austin's admissions office is pretty small. Most of the people who are evaluating the, um, the files are grad students. So like, really? Um, yeah. Yeah. They're, they're hired on a temporary basis and they, they just evaluate files. Wait, are you serious? I'm serious. A grad student probably yeah, read my application to UT. Yes. Yes. Also, you can see which people, like, read your uh, file. Like, it's also on the admissions file. <laughs> oh, I didn't know. That's, that's interesting. Um, okay, well, this has been a slightly disturbing conversation. Um, I have a few just, like, <laughs> loose end, <laughs> some, some just, like, loose end questions to, to ask. Um, and mainly, this is just out of my own curiosity, since I did apply to UT as well. Honors programs, how are they affected by the system? Well, um, I can tell you for my two honors programs that they definitely do not use this system. They, okay. uh, they, they, they also work on in their very different ways. <laughs> and I would say they're more holistic. They're actually holistic and they are more fair. But uh, I'm not going to go into how they work because that's a whole other conversation. And, <laughs> and also, I don't want to like, I don't want to like really compromise like the integrity of how their admissions process works as well. So I'm just going to, 
I'm not going to comment on that too much. But, but basically, like, they definitely don't use this system. You know, they will they'll take extracurriculars much more into account. So, like, is it possible for someone to get into an honors program but not into the school? Uh, I've seen people inter- uh, who advance... Or get interviewed for BHP, they get, for they, they get an interview from BHP, and then they got rejected from UT Austin. And then there's nothing uh, BHP can do unless they really beg the admissions office to, like, make a special exception. But, like, yeah, that's probably not going to happen. Um, and in that case, that person you know, was basically told by BHP, like, sorry, there's nothing we can do. Good luck. It's very sad. It's very sad. Like, um, I know, like, there are some, there are these edge cases that um, these otters programs have had to deal with, and it's just very difficult and very unfortunate the way that they turn out, just because of how different the honors programs admit students compared to how UT Austin admits it in general. Right. Do you know if this system is used for people who've been capped? Or, or so what what it means to be capped is you aren't admitted after your senior year, but you are admitted to go to a, your local public school university. And if you take a certain number of courses uh, in a certain range of subjects, then you can get into UT, the flagship university, UT at Austin, your your um, sophomore year. Is this system in place for cap transfers as well? Um, well, it, it would depend on where you try to transfer into. So CAP students are guaranteed admissions to uh, most majors in the College of Liberal Arts at UT. If they reach, if they have a minimum GPA of 3.2, then they automatically get in. So then there's mm-hmm. not really a question of whether they're getting in or not. You know, it's, it's going to happen. Um, but as far as students who are trying to apply to other schools, I think then that just gets factored into UT Austin's uh, transfer admissions process. And I'm actually not too familiar with the transfer admissions process because um, you're not a transfer uh, first student. off, I'm not a transfer student. They don't have like they haven't released any public information about this. Um, and the uh, admissions office director changed since we applied to UT. So we were the last oh. year to be under, I think her name is Susan Kearns. Now we're under Miguel Wazalewski. I don't know how you say his last name, but he. <laughs> um, so, I is is it okay if I use some French here on this channel? Please, Not French, please. but like profanity. Yeah. So, pretty much, I've seen this year the admissions process has been a, has been a show. Um, he's, <laughs> he's 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 up a lot. Yeah. What has he done? I don't know if you you would like to talk about this, but but I'm curious. UT Austin denied like many more students than they usually do. We have, I think like 2,000 spaces, between 1,000 to 2,000 spaces were lost this year because they overmitted last year. So as a result, a lot of qualified students were rejected because they had low class ranks, basically. And, um, you know, I saw this from TAMS. I saw this from other schools as well. It was really sad. I know a guy who was, do you know Yusuko, like the computing, um, the no. US, USA Computing Olympiad? Computing Olympiad, oh, sorry. I, okay, Computing Olympiad, yeah, that makes sense. Okay. It's for I like CS I, students, I had a right? friend who did that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we had someone who was Yusuko Platinum, um, mm-hmm. which is like oh. the highest tier you can get to. Right. And he got rejected from UT Austin. Like, how the hell does that happen? Right? Really? Yeah, like usually that means you'll get into Turing, 
But for sure, it, you know. But this guy got rejected from UT. Where did he end up going? Home. So what ended up happening is a lot of um, appeals this year were were granted because they realized that they had denied so many students that they under enrolled. So they used appeals as a way to admit people back oh in when they, when they should have originally been admitted in. Oh and my so this, goodness. Thankfully, this guy appealed and he got in. And now he's going to UT Austin. That's actually ridiculous. That it is ridiculous. First, un, like they, they first over-enrolled, then they under-enrolled, then they used the appeal process, which if you read their website, they're they're very like hesitant to give anything away for, for appeals. They're like, no guarantees, mm-hmm. you send this, you send it via snail mail, you have to wait, you might get a call, you might not, you just have to wait. Like this is not a very like friendly process for the student, but mm-hmm. <laughs> like mm-hmm. this year they had to use it to, to get to the numbers they needed to. That's that's yes. kind of yeah. insane. So it is a show, right? Like, I don't use that term lightly, but yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty unfortunate and bar- like funny how like how bad it got this year. Um, hopefully, sure. it won't be like this next year, but we, I really don't know because it, it really appears that Miguel Wazalewski has brought in different flair than his predecessor. So um, it, we could see it through how he handled transfer admissions this year as well. Um, so it remains to be seen what it looks like next year. Uh, so, you know, I think it's good and good to operate on what we do know and then kind of go from there. Right. Right. Well, a different flair seems to be a polite way of saying it, but I think I, I, I get it. I get it. Yes, Yes. absolutely. (laughs) Um, what is the weirdest thing you saw on your admissions file? Was there something that stuck out to you as just like, I did not think this would be here. Oh, like, um, in terms of like the information that appeared, uh, that's a good question. There's, there's a, there is a lot of here. <laughs> I guess I was disappointed to not see my, um, what do you call it? You know, any emissions comments that would be nice to yes, see for sure, but for it's sure. whatever I did see like who my reviewers were like their names and their, um, EIDs, which is UT's way of identifying someone like which doesn't yeah. seem like a smart way to give that out like well, that seems to be one EID... thing that i'm okay with being kept a little actually bit under wraps. actually actually eids are uh they are uh, ferpa directory information at ut austin so it's fine so um but but still no, but like, like oh oh just the name in general the pe- yeah like couldn't you yeah find the that is true because you can easily dox your yeah if you like if you yeah because you can see their the pais they gave you too so like yeah, you can easily so dox like, them. Yeah, which mm-hmm. seems to me like oh, like yeah. I am mostly on the side of transparency, but this is one area where I think we can, you know, for the safety right. of the was involved, keep that. I agree. Place. I I don't I did not want to see who reviewed my files either. Um and I also didn't want to see my rec letters and yet here they are. But it's it's whatever. Um also UT Austin computed uh the probability that I'd graduate. So Oh, apparent, that's uncomfortable. apparently yeah, apparently I have an eighty-four percent chance of graduating. So I don't know if I maybe there's a fifteen percent chance I get too drunk and then I will just drop out of school and fail on my finals. <laughs> Whatever. Thanks, or UT. You have a lot of, of faith in me. Or the office of space management just kicks you out one day. Who knows? Yeah, they're they're basically Thanos, basically, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
no, I'm kidding. That's not going to happen. But like, uh, yeah, thankfully, the admissions office does not have the authority to um, kick people out of UT once they're a student. So, yay. Thank goodness. Um, thank goodness. Yeah. Thank goodness. Right. Otherwise, I'm pretty sure people would be kicked out left and right for ridiculous reasons. Um, but One yeah, more I question. think that's. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Yeah. One more question is, what do you think? It... Or like, has there been a response to you publishing this data, whether it's from, you know, students, high school students, or I'm particularly interested in whether the administration and, and the admissions office has said anything publicly about your conclusions? Um, UT Austin has not addressed this at all. Um, Which is to be expected. Students have, I've, I know, I think there's hundreds of students who have, at least hundreds of students if not thousands, I, th- I would say hundreds just to be safe, but have used um, the website that I published to get their files back. Um, let's see. Obviously, a lot of students have, you know, expressed happiness about, you know, being able to get this back because obviously students want to see this. Um, I've had someone who works at UT, you know, talk with me. And then they, they, they personally said they didn't think this was a good idea and they did, you know, it's a waste of resources. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, uh, the students have the right to request this stuff sure. back. Um, I do believe in transparency like you do. And um, it's their right. And I've put I've since put up a disclaimer saying like it's, it's not for the, you know, faint of heart. Like if you just want to see your right, right. comments if you want to see your comments like please don't request they're not you're going there. to be wasting they're not there you're going to waste your time and you're going to waste people at ut's time but if you really want to see your admissions file your academic index and your personal achievement index like i do then i think it is a valid reason to request it uh and i'm not trying to gatekeep but like at the same time like you know yeah just don't want to pe- waste people's resources and time so so yeah um Absolutely. yeah yeah well, I think that is a great way to leave it off. Raw, raw to transparency. Boo to this wacky, like really wacky system that UT has come up with. Like as you were telling, oh yeah, me, it's with it, it is like, my extremely eyes kind of getting wider and wider. I'm like, what is happening? Yeah, I've learned so much over the past few years just by just digging in and investigating, and it's it is really interesting to see all this. Like, I'm I'm very. Um, I'm very glad I've dug in because like it's it is very fascinating, but at the same time, of course, it's disturbing. And so, all I'll say is, you know, students should try to get acquainted with how the admissions process works. We are fortunate enough to have that privilege because a lot of students don't know how their university does admissions, and they'll never sure. find out. But because sure. of Fisher v. UT, because of you know the research that we've been doing, because of the admissions files that we've gotten back, we've been able to kind of gain more insight into how UT Austin does their admissions process. And I think that's a that's a real privilege to have. And I really highly encourage students to take advantage of it. I'm gonna give a quick plug and just say like check out our you know check out our slash UT Austin admissions. You know, definitely Please, great uni- uh, great community to use if you're trying to apply to UT. We've got a lot of contributors. Um, you know here who've applied and they're you know have also been doing research and you know we we all try to give the best advice we can and you know if we if if one of us gives advice we disagree on you know we'll we'll definitely like correct each other and stuff like that so i think it's a great resource to use 
Um, obviously, you know, this podcast is a great resource as well. So Thanks, if you're yeah, here listening, you. then if you're here listening, then you're definitely in the right place. So thank yeah. you. Now, if someone wants to give you their admissions data, um, if they've already FERPA'd it or if they just have any questions, how can they contact you? Absolutely. Uh, you can email it to me at um, my last name, wang at cs.utexas.edu. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, Jeffrey, it really has been amazing talking to you. This has actually been one of the most interesting conversations I've had in a very long time about admissions and especially about this wacky, wacky system that UT uses. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. And- Thank you so much, Michael, for having me. Um, I've also really enjoyed talking about this, and I love having these conversations, especially just just because it is a very interesting subject. So, thanks for having me. Um, I love to come <laughs> on sometime soon later, you know, to talk about this more. Um, of course. And yeah, I still have questions. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, and as and as I do more research, I'll you know I'll try to share more information. But uh, happy Fourth of yeah. July, everybody. Happy Fourth. Yeah, we are recording this on the Fourth of July. Happy American Day, everybody! Um, <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much for coming, Jeffrey. Um, thank you so much for listening, listeners. This has been an episode of the Admissions Uncovered podcast. It's the college admissions podcast for the students, by the students. And I will give one of my two usual plugs here at the end of the podcast. We have an Instagram page. Yes, we do. It's at admissions.uncovered. It's fun, usually. It has, it has good advice. We, we take some cool quotes from the episode and, and put it up. Funny quotes, the, the most pithy quotes we put up there. And I've started doing college admissions memes lately, and sometimes they're good. Um, and other times they're just cringy dad jokes. So if they are cringy dad jokes, you can comment and roast me. But otherwise, you can like the nice memes. So go to at admissions.uncovered on our Instagram page and uh, check us out. But thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. I think conversations like these about how admissions works are the reason why I'm still interested in it, you know, like a year out, because it's such a wacky system for such an important time in, in basically everybody's life. Um, so that's why we do this to, to like figure out these things. And so I'm glad you came up with, with us on this ride. I'm glad you listened to this episode. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next week.